Hello, and welcome back to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Todd Norwood, here with my co-host, Jason Hammond. Hello. All right, Jason, what are we talking about this time around? All right, we're talking about losing weight during base. So our last few episodes were base training, strength training with base, and now we're going to talk about how to lose weight. I'm going to talk about a particular protocol that I used last year that I lost six kilos in seven weeks. Um, we know that the deep part of your base is usually... Um, eight to 12 weeks. So I lost weight during that time. And there's a particular protocol that I used. And we're also going to talk about a few white papers that uh, align with my protocol, uh, not intentionally. I came up with the protocol in a more, uh, you know, a less formal way, less scientific way, but I have some evidence to suggest that it's a good protocol uh, on top of the evidence of, you know, it being successful for me. So N equals one plus some published research that backs that up. Yeah, we'll, we'll see as, as we get to the white papers. So before we do that, I actually want to talk about an experience I had. So I'm working on hamstring strength as part of my strength training, and I'm doing angled glute ham raise. So your, you know, your feet are locked in and you bend at the waist and your head uh, goes to the floor and you, know, you make this V shape. And then you have a kettlebell or a medicine ball and you lift up and you squeeze your glutes and you squeeze your hamstrings and you also squeeze your quadratus lumbarum and your rhomboids and all of your back. And it's a posterior chain exercise. So while I was doing this, I was getting way too much QL recruitment, which is the muscles that connect your pelvis to your rib cage. Mm -hmm. And I got a weightlifting belt. In order to, I mean, if, if you guys don't know what a weightlifting belt is, it's a stiff belt that you put around your waist that essentially prevents those muscles from bending. And it acts as a, an assistance to your core. Uh, we do have our core episode. And the reason that this is awesome is all of the exercises were so much easier with the weightlifting belt. And I think the big takeaway for me was... I need to work on my core so that those exercises are so easy, even without the belt. And it was just a really good illustration of, hmm, maybe a strong core allows my legs to push off something and gives them the, you know, their actual strength can be utilized well. And it was just a really illustrative effect on me. And so, yeah, I'm uh, maybe doing a few more uh, crunches and leg raises and this is like a, a topic for a diversion and I'm not going to go too far down that path right now. But so you're when you're at the top of that position, right, and you're um, horizontal, most people tend to have all the posterior back muscles like all the way on fully engaged and sometimes lack the anterior. You need, you need those other muscles, transverse abdominis in particular, to provide that stability. Uh, that, that's sort of, I think, in your case where that white belt was coming in and it's playing that role for you. And to your point, it's giving you that stability to push off of. Um, so yeah, definitely want to work on that core. And really, you should actually be able to get in that horizontal position and not have all those back muscles like on 100% popping off your back. They should be on. They should be working, giving you stability. But that shouldn't be the only thing that's working in that situation. Yeah, and when you are horizontal, you should have a neutral spine. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't be bowed in, which is really common. And I mean, that's also my fault. I would say my personal weakness as a rider is my core strength. So this is a good opportunity to see, oh, this is how a good core will positively affect me. And if you are someone who's like, eh, is core useful? Uh, you know, should I do this? Maybe get a weightlifting belt. They're 20, 30 bucks and 
go through some of your deadlifts, some of your squats or whatever winter training you're doing and see if uh, a better core will make you feel better. So I'm, I'm going to risk citing the research incorrectly here, but there is a standard test for sort of core strength and back strength that's in that position, that horizontal. And I want to say it's three minutes and change is like the standard for individuals without back pain. And so, you know, of course, when they're doing these studies, they're looking at like, oh, what's different between people with back pain and people without? And one of these things was the endurance of people without back pain was much greater than those with back pain. So then they hypothesize, well, you know, core muscle strength maybe is a contributor uh, to those with back pain. So I forget the name of the test offhand, but it's, it's pretty fascinating. And if you ever do that, three minutes feels like forever if you're hanging out uh, in that horizontal position, just supporting your trunk with your musculature. Sure. We'll try and put in the show notes the, uh, the, the name of the test name, and yeah, a protocol. link to a, to a good uh, protocol. So let's move on to the protocol that I used for weight loss. So uh, the big thing with base is you can refer to the base episode, but you're going to go on these long rides and you're building your stroke volume, you're building your mitochondrial density, you're building all these really good effects that will aid you in your road racing, your crits, across the board as a cyclist. But these these long rides, uh, I'm going to refer to them as four-hour rides because, uh, well, I'm a Cat 1, and Cat 1 road races are four hours. So uh, I think that's a pretty good uh, standard time. And once you get to five, six hours, you start to risk injury, you start to risk some issues. And th- I mean, there's a reason pros do it, but there's not much reason that amateurs do it. So when you're doing these four-hour rides, the big thing to do is to add some weight loss because the intensity is low enough that it's not a maximal effort. When you're doing your sweet spot training, you're going to get into a situation where if you try to add on something like fasted riding or something like, uh, you know, we did blood flow restriction training uh, as an episode. If you try and add those things on, you risk either getting injury, getting burnout, having issues. But here, because the ride is lower intensity, you can add on these other ways to gain benefits as a rider. So first, I'm just going to talk about the protocol. Um, Wake up, have some coffee, have a small breakfast of fats and proteins. Really try not to have any carbs. Wait an hour, let your stomach settle. Go for your three, four, five, six hour ride, whatever your length of uh, longest race is. And you want to do this at 50% of VO2 max. And for me, that's about 200 watts. And this should be done at a very low variability index value of 1.05 to 1.1 at the most. And it should really feel like a time trial at whatever your 50% VO2 max is. In the first 30 minutes, only water. Next 30 minutes, only electrolyte drink. And then after the first hour, you can start to supplement 50 to 75 grams of carbs per hour split into 15 minute intervals. So this would be um, a small gel. If you use gels, I would recommend solid food. So you're looking at um, 17 grams of solid food per 15 minute interval. And if you have a higher wattage, uh, I did 60 grams of carbs per hour at 200 watts. If you're hitting 220, 240 uh, because your VO2 max is high or you're a huge rider, um, you should have a little more carbs up, up to 75 grams and continue this protocol till the end of the ride. So for me, that's 60 grams an hour for the rest of the ride. 
come home, eat a small meal, 25 grams protein, 75 grams carbs, something like that. Try and get real food and keep the glycemic index low and um, have another moderate meal in a few hours, focusing on a balanced meal. You definitely want all of fats, carbs, and protein. And then at dinner, have something like, for example, I always, my go-to was sweet potatoes, broccoli, red peppers, onions, and a little bit of ground meat mixed in um, with some coconut or olive oil. And that's, you know, your fats, your proteins, your veggies, um, and your carbs from the sweet potatoes, but it's also low glycemic carbs. Mm -hmm. And for me, I was doing this three or four times a week. And the reason for that is because I had four hour rides three or four times a week. So what's happening? Um, that's the protocol. Let's talk about what's happening from a, not a scientific perspective, but maybe, a um, speculative perspective. So the no carb breakfast, we're trying to do a semi-fasted ride. So not a pure fasted ride, which is you wake up and you go out. You want to have something in your stomach, but you want to skimp on the carbs. So you have energy to complete the ride, but you haven't brought your blood sugar up and you haven't introduced carbohydrates other than what you had the day before or the night before. Well, and so that's your glycogen stores at that point, right? That you're starting to right. utilize so when you right start away. The ride, yeah. When you start the ride, your blood sugar is going to be... Um, at its baseline, it's not going to be elevated. And so you dip into your glycogen stores right away. And that, and part of that is in the first hour, you're trying to use up those glycogen stores before you start to take in any exogenous carbohydrates. Well, or as, as much as you can, right? Because you figure at the lower intensity, you should be burning a lot more fat as a percentage. Yep. Um, and therefore if you had say 500 grams of glycogen, that's actually going to spread out over several hours of riding. Mm-hmm. And well, we talked about this before, how how much of that 500 grams can we access? And that is why you do supplement uh, further on. So after the first hour, you supplement because you don't want to bonk. You right. need to be able to maintain that intensity, that 50% of VO2 max intensity. So you have to take in some carbohydrates or your power will definitely drop off. And the thing I always learned in exercise physiology was, yes, great. You have plenty of fat that you can burn as an energy source. And when you start to do exercise, even if you're, you know, burning a high percentage of fat for energy, you still need some carbohydrates to facilitate that process. Um, there may be some research now about high fat diets and endurance athletes that start to refute that um, long held notion that I learned. But I, mean, I think that's fairly, fairly strong evidence. I think we, we use that all the time when we go out and, and ride and train. Yep. And we'll talk about some um, fat adapted athletes in the white papers. But uh, one big argument is that uh, our brain uses carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. So if we get really low on carb stores, then um, well, our essential body functions stop to yep. stop working. And our, and our brain is one of the largest users of carbohydrates, even when we're exercising. Yep. So uh, just to give you some numbers, uh, 200 watts for four hours, that's about 2,800 calories, 700 calories an hour. Um, I, if I ingested say 1100 calories from carbohydrates. So I, I think the calculation is closer to 900 at 60 grams. You're not supposed to do math on a podcast. Two, 240 times four hours is three hours. Yeah, 240 yeah. times three hours. And so anyway, uh, but you have to include some fat calories sure. and, um, some protein because you're not gonna, you shouldn't eat pure sugar on these rides. So, you know, oddball 1100 calories. So you have approximately 1,700 calories that you burned that you did not replace during the ride. Mm -hmm. And the goal is for that 1,700 calories to be adipose tissue that you used. 
So our goal here is to use the fat in our bodies for that 1700 calories because um, a pound of body mass is about 3,500 calories. Mm -hmm. So that 17 is about half a pound of body fat that you burned on your ride. And the trick here is not eating that back on after the ride. So everyone after their group ride, first off, your group ride is going to be higher intensity anyway. But everyone loves to go to the burrito shop after the group ride. And so one, you have higher intensity, so you have less adipose tissue consumption. Mm -hmm. And two, you smash that burrito with the guac and the sour cream and all of the calories that you burned on your ride. Uh, they all disappear back into the food you ate. Right. They all well, they all are consumed by way of that burrito. Yep. Or pastry or whatever it was that you, whatever your you stopped uh, for. Yeah. And uh, lastly, the, the important part of the dinner with the vegetables is to maintain your micronutrient levels. And if you are calorie deficient, you are also going to be micronutrient deficient. So you need to hyper nutrient uh, the foods that you do get. So focus on, um, you know, colorful vegetables. And we have a off season weight loss episode that you can refer to. That's about how to lose weight, not on the bike. This one is a little more, how do we actively use our riding to lose the weight? So uh, some important notes here. Your coach should be on board with this program if you're following a training plan. I was really lucky to have a coach last year who was all game for this, and she was really good about um, organizing my rides and organizing my recovery to match this protocol. And she was super excited that I, I had lost so much weight, and um, it really pumped up my uh, my numbers. We talked about this on the uh, inside test episode. Mm -hmm. um, comparing my old numbers to my new numbers, a lot of that was because of the, of the weight loss. I lost almost like 8% of my body weight. So, you know, you multiply that in, you suddenly your numbers look so much yeah, yeah. better. Power to weight ratio has two components to it, right? Yeah. And of course, all these uh, testing protocols are per kilogram. Mm -hmm. So um, the other thing it can't, the protocol can add a little extra fatigue to your weight, uh, weekly training. So make sure that you, if, you know, this is an endurance ride, so it should be the last ride in your block anyway, but you have to make sure that you know, you're not doing sweet spot the next day because this is a low carb uh, attempt at losing weight. So you're not going to feel very punchy the next day. So I, I have a few times done this back to back, which was okay, mostly because if I didn't recover my glycogen stores by the end of the day, it didn't really matter because mm -hmm. I was trying to get rid of them again anyway the next day. But I would be concerned if I had some sort of sprint intervals or VO2 max intervals or something like that the next day. But you know, like I said, you shouldn't be doing that anyway. This should be the last day of your block before your recovery ride or your, your recovery day. And on your recovery day, also don't eat back the calories, which um, is something that some people struggle with. Well, I mean, you are fighting nature, right? And we're always um, trending towards homeostasis and restoring our, our natural balance. So at some, some level, you're you know, your your nature, your subconscious is driving you towards that. I think that's where you know, having those foods that are very satisfying and very filling, right? Like so, the the vegetables that have fiber and the high nutrient content, the proteins again, they're usually very filling for you uh, and can offset some of that desire to you know, gorge yourself on whatever. Yeah, I think the other thing that's important is not having sugary foods when you're coming down from the ride. And the main reason for that is if your blood sugar does spike, then when you come down, your food cravings really increase. And so if you can stay uh, low glycemic index stuff, it can really help to uh, satiate or you know mm -hmm. prevent you from having those hunger cravings. 
So let's talk about a few white papers. I have four in total that um, sort of aid me in my uh, my claim that this is, no, I'm not going to say like this is the best, you know, on bike weight loss protocol, but I wouldn't be surprised if uh, professional riders didn't use a very similar protocol. And I guess now's the time to mention that, you know, there are two types of pro riders. Some stay skinny all the time. Uh, that's not my style. I mean, I'm not a pro rider, but that's not my style. Uh, some riders instead gain weight in the off season, and then lose it again. Mm-hmm. And those are the ones who, you know, they want to eat ice cream in the off season and they don't mind doing this little, little bit of extra work during the base period. I remember Chris Froome when everyone was saying, oh, there's no way he has X watts per kilo make him do a, you know, a physiological test. He did it in the off season and they reported his body fat percentage at 16%. And so even, you know, a four-time Tour de France winner is going up to 16% body fat in the in the offseason, and then he comes back down. So there's definitely a reasonable protocol uh, to do that, to gain weight and then lose it again. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, those guys are just burning so many calories, right? That You, you know, throughout their racing season, throughout their training, I feel like it's almost inevitable that with the amount of food they have to eat, it's hard to keep up, especially when you start to talk about the Grand Tours. Yeah. And I guess as opposed to like a track rider and like a track sprinter, of course, we know they're huge. And even uh, an endurance track rider, they can come uh, pretty big as well. And that's because the total kilojoules is not as high mm-hmm. and it's mostly carbs. So yep. the track riders are always packing in the sugar and these endurance guys. And that, that's another thing that we should mention is the the metabolic stimulus that occurs in hour three in hour four in hour five when you only have your exogenous uh, glucose to fuel your brain and these essential functions. And then you have your adipose tissue to fuel yourself. Your body undergoes some crazy adaptations to make you more okay with this situation. And that's something that I remember reading uh, an interview with a, a high level coach who said, that's the most important thing is you can't do four one hour rides in the same day. It's, four hours continuously it's that third and fourth hour that really start to make you adapt to being able to to use fat and to um, produce energy even though your stores are low and i think we try to hack that sometimes right with the fasted riding right it's okay well let me let me already start in a deficit and see if i can maybe get there in two hours or three hours rather than four or five yep so let's talk about these white papers so uh, the first one is pre-exercise carbohydrate and fat ingestion effects on metabolism and performance. So this is all in the show notes if you want to take a look. But um, the big takeaway from this paper is there's an increase in plasma insulin following carbohydrate ingestion in the hour before exercise, and it inhibits lipolysis and liver glucose output. So liver glucose, that makes sense. If you have carbohydrates before your ride, you're going to have less liver glucose output because you're just going to use the sugar in your blood like well and you have insulin coming out which is trying to store the sugar inherently and you know i think if you just take a step back i always like to think about evolutionary biology like okay we we evolved from a time when food was not as easy as just going down to the whole foods or the grocery store around the corner and so it was more scarce and your body wanted to conserve so if you put carbohydrates in you're your body's natural thing, unless you're really low in blood sugar at that very moment is, well, let's store this for a later date. Right. And so that, that drives that 
desire the insulin to come out and then uh, start that sort of storage process rather than you know immediately activating it for utilization yep and i think even bigger than the liver glucose is the the inhibition of lipolysis mm-hmm. lipolysis is the the fat breakdown breakdown of fat adipose tissue so if you eat carbohydrates an hour before your workout you're gonna get less fat burning mm-hmm. and so we avoid that with this protocol by having a fat and protein breakfast, no carbs, because we don't want that plasma insulin. We don't want a decrease in lipolysis. The next one is effects of caffeine co-ingested with carbohydrate or fat on metabolism and performance in endurance trained men. So I know you're a huge caffeine fan and I know you've had some questions, I think off air about the effects of caffeine. Um, This one's pretty interesting although it's probably not going to give you the conclusion that you want. So it's commonly held that caffeine helps with um, glucose utilization. And this was sort of debated whether or not it even did anything. And it was also debated whether that was a good thing, that it encourages more glycogen use. Because in road racing, we want to conserve our glycogen as much as we can because it is so many kilojoules. We want to utilize fat as much as possible. So maybe caffeine isn't quite what we want for having a lot of energy. But actually, the co-ingestion of caffeine with either fat or carbohydrates had no effect relative to caffeine by itself or carbs by itself or fat by itself. Having caffeine with with either fat or carbs didn't show any benefit. But um, they did notice that ingestion of carbohydrates improved subsequent time trial performance relative to fat ingestion. So this is uh, just a friendly reminder that you do need carbs for your workouts. So now that we're talking about fat utilization and eating low carbs before your ride, we should remind you that this is a specific protocol to lose weight, and it's important to have carbs if you're doing any intensity, if you're doing any sort of performance work, you need to be fueling with carbohydrates and you need to pre-eat carbohydrates. Right. I think that's key. I mean, you can sort of chart it against intensity, right? And the more intense your workout is, the more your body needs carbohydrates to burn to provide that power versus if it's a lower intensity, then you still need some carbohydrates, but you can get by and you'll primarily uh, use fats to produce that energy. Yep. And so the reason that this workout works okay is because it is submaximal and we are using a lot of fat in the workout, but also there's no uh, demand for the completion of the workout. Some workouts are, you're going to do six intervals. If the fifth one isn't high enough wattage, you go home. This is not one of those. You get home when you get home. Hopefully you can maintain the watts, you know, eat enough carbs. It's it's not a, am I going to finish this? So the, the total energy demands aren't there for you to say, okay, we need to justify carb intake before the workout. So the next uh, white paper is lipid metabolism during endurance exercise. This one is actually a review and it's really interesting. So if you're at all interested in this, you should read this paper. And the link that I followed is not um, soft paywall blocked or anything. So you should be able to read the whole paper. But um, let me just read through a few of these. After an overnight fast, most energy needs at rest are provided by oxidizing fatty acid derived from adipose tissue. So right away, 
when we wake up in the morning for this ride, we're already utilizing most of our energy needs from adipose tissue. So we're already in that position. Like you said, with fasted riding, we're trying to get in that low glycogen state. So even if you have glycogen stores in your body, if you fast for 12 hours, you still are getting most of your energy from adipose tissue. This is part of the idea behind the intermittent fasting mm-hmm. dieting group. Um, they lean on the fact that you have, um, you are using so much adipose tissue when you fast for 12 hours, 16 hours or so. So in line with this, we also have that um, adipose tissue activity is regulated by the balance between hormones that stimulate and hormones that inhibit hormone-sensitive lipase. So hormones regulate our fat burning, and what is the hormone that inhibits fat burning? We already talked about it today. Insulin? Yep. So the adipose tissue activity is regulated by the balance of, uh, I can't pronounce this one, but um, insulin is the one that decreases. So, Well, insulin is more of a storage. Are you talking about glucagon? The What's sugar? Catecholamines. Catecholamines? Yeah. Okay. So that would include things like adrenaline as a catecholamine. Okay. So basically, if you, you know, you're eating high sugar foods, you have increases in insulin, and that is decreasing your adipose tissue activity. And that's why throughout the protocol, I mean, not why, this is supporting evidence for why it may be good to focus on lower glycemic index foods. And we know that higher glycemic index foods, you know, classic white sugar, um, honey, yep, a lot, uh, some fruits. Mm-hmm. Um, if if you have these high glycemic index foods, then you spike your insulin and you decrease adipose tissue activity. Um, we the paper also talks about how mild to moderate intensity exercise, twenty five to sixty five percent of VO two max. Uh, is associated with a five to tenfold increase in fatty oxidation above resting amounts. So that's why we do 50% because it's right in the middle of that window and allows us to uh, use, um, have, have this five to tenfold increase of fatty oxidation. Mm-hmm. So the other thing that the reason I picked 50% is that's right around where the inside test indicated was the highest total grams of fat burning for my personal um, profile, metabolic profile. I forget. I think that's how they called it. Um, so that's my number, but, um, I would say that's a pretty good guess for most people. You may want to do 45%, may want to do 55%. But another, so there is an area of this paper that we're not going to talk about, but it talks a little bit about where the energy comes from, whether it's intramuscular fat or adipose tissue Mm -hmm. fat. And it's basically inconclusive as to where the fat comes from. But regardless, it's fat burning. And there's some ambiguity about whether intramuscular fat stores are replaced by adipose tissue. And um, it's there, there doesn't seem to be enough information. And there seems to be a lot of competing studies that say uh, you do use a lot of intramuscular fat and some that say that you don't. So um, you can read that if you want in the paper. But the next cool part of this paper is the fact that eating a high fat meal which contains primarily of long long chain triglycerides before exercise is not practical 
because of the delay and limited availability of these fats, which um, they linked to a study that said that uh, long chain triglycerides are slowly emptied from the stomach and only a small portion of them are oxidized within six hours of ingestion. Wow. So if you eat fat before your ride and it's long chain fatty acids, you it's not useful unless you're riding for seven, eight hours. But medium, tra- medium chain triglycerides, uh, acids with eight to 10 carbon atoms are emptied rapidly from the stomach and rapidly absorbed by the small intestine. Also known as coconut oil. Yep. So some um, medium chain triglycerides are avocados, coconut oil, olive oil, dairy uh, is a good option. But the percent uh, medium chain triglycerides in those is still only 5 to 15%. So most of the fat is still uh, long chain, but you get a little bit of useful energy out of those. So if you are looking at um, what kind of breakfast should I have, you know, maybe uh, some sort of um, dairy-based, if you can handle the cheese or milk um, or coconut oil, or, you know, maybe cook eggs and coconut oil could be a way to get a little bit more fat that you can utilize for the ride. And I, this is not uh, white paper, but I believe ingesting the, uh, the fats that the medium chain fats will help increase total fat utilization. So it'll get us in the same direction that we want to go. So, and, and it says the amount of medium chain triglycerides that we can tolerate is about 25 to 30 grams. So that's still 800 calories. It's quite a a bit, you know, and even if you figure you're only going to get, you know, 15% from the the fat source that you're using that, yeah, you'd have to have quite a bit of fat to actually hit that number. Yeah. I mean, in practical usage, you don't need that really. Um, You should eat something just because your body will use it or it'll help indicate that you're going to be okay and you won't enter the starvation mode. But now, when it comes to practical use, you probably aren't using the energy from your breakfast that much in the ride. And then the last paper is the effects of fat adaptation and carbohydrate restoration on prolonged endurance exercise. So this one's pretty cool. And this goes to our fat adapted athletes. So we'll probably have a separate episode on fat adapted athletes. But this, oh, Todd, you're going to want to hear this. So for this study, they did a week. One group did high carbohydrate diet. One did high fat diet for a week. Okay. And then the test protocol was four hours at sixty-five percent VO two max, and then a one-hour time trial. I feel terrible for those people that signed up for that. That's awful. When I, when I'm done a four-hour ride, what? I'm gonna lay on my floor, or you know maybe in the shower. So, okay, one uh, redeeming factor is that they both consumed high-carbohydrate diets on the eighth day. So for the first seven days, one group did high-carb, the other group did high-fat. On the eighth day, they both did high-carb. And the high-fat group had 11% more power in the one-hour TT than the high-carb group. And what the authors say is that, well they were fat adapted or they be started to become fat adapted. Mm-hmm. But then we also gave them the carbs they needed to do the high intensity work. So we didn't inhibit their carbs, but we also encouraged their fat metabolism. And we were able to induce the, the, you know, the best of both worlds and get 11% performance. And what's crazy is that 
This is after four hours of riding. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly when you need it in a road race. And I don't know why every, you know, pro team isn't scrambling to like get these authors to, you know, give them, you know, work or something, because this is a really compelling study that says, look, if you don't eat carbs for a week before your race, and then the day before your race, you smash your glycogen stores, you're going to go 11% faster after four hours. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating to me. And I think from some of the other research I've looked at, that seems like a super short time frame to get that sort of effect. So I'm definitely going to be uh, reviewing that one a little bit. Yeah, I later. mean, of course, all of these studies are okay. The review is really good. Um, it's a culmination of a lot of. That's the third one that we talked about. Mm-hmm. It's a culmination of a lot of um, different studies, but this fourth one where they saw the 11% improvement is eight riders. Okay. So yeah, well, that's typical for for uh, sports science. Yeah, sports science is typically pretty small, but. Um, you know, statistical significance. It was still statistically significant. And, um, you know, there are the way the equations work is the smaller the n value, the more um, the more difference is needed for it to mm-hmm. be statistically significant. So there was a statistically significant difference still, even though the size was small. But it would be cool if they got 100 people to do this. Sure. Yeah. Still with, true. with eight, you know, one one person that's 100 percent better will carry the carry the weight for everybody. Right. Yeah. Or um, I mean, yeah, there's lots of opportunity. I mean, I'm sure we can all think of a few ways that your one hour TT after four hours could get uh, ruined. Yep. And on you either know, side. Look at the. At the end of the day, as with all good science, replication is key, right? Someone else needs to do that study, you know, even with the same sample size and the similar population and see a, see a similar result before we can say like, oh, yes, this is this is the thing that we need to do for yep. our diets to improve our hour and the fifth, our form of the fifth hour riding. Uh, can you imagine doing that? I wonder if they knew in advance or they signed up and then the, the scientists doing the protocol. Okay, now ride as hard as you can for the next 60 minutes. I mean, I imagine they must have given them some clue of how long they were going to be pedaling. I, you know, I can't imagine like, hey, we're going to do a study. You're going to eat, you know, a different diet and you're going to ride your bike for a little bit. I imagine they had to have some idea. And obviously the second time around, they knew they knew it was coming, right? The first time, like, oh, hey, ride for four hours. And now we're doing a one hour yeah. time trial. So yeah, they they must have had some advance. I just wonder the degree of like how much they told them. And I also wonder if it was was it in a lab or was it on the road? Because in the lab, oh, five hours on the. Oh, it was in the lab. lab. I mean, I'm sure that's in the method section. We can we can can answer that one. But that sounds uh, pretty awful to do five hours on the on the watt bike. Because how would you? It'd be hard to verify on the road. Yeah, you'd need like a completely like a, flat road. Yeah, or continuous road or yeah. like a continuous 2% grade. Yeah, well, you know, Arizona exists. but um, <laughs> So I, I think the big takeaway from this last one, though, is the this sort of supports the idea that a lot of base training is fat, le- teaching your body how to use fat for energy mm-hmm. in longer races. And... What we want to do is we don't want to forget about our carb utilization, but we want to amp up our fat utilization. And it appears the way to do that is to decrease carbohydrate consumption for some period of time and maybe do fasted riding or do riding without your carbohydrates. And then when it's time to compete, reintroduce the carbs or when it's time to work on your high intensity, Mm -hmm. reintroduce the carbs. So this, I mean, there have been numerous nutritionists cycling nutritionists who say 
yes, you need to cater your carbs to the intensity. But this seems to give an almost more intense recommendation that you should really be inhibiting the carbs during the base period and then really ramping it back up when it's time to do higher intensity work. Yeah, I think that's not a not an uncommon thought. And I, there was an episode we did earlier where we talked about nutrient timing that sort of touched on this principle too, this idea of, okay, well, if you're doing long endurance ride, then maybe not as many carbs the night before, you know, with that goal in mind versus if you're doing high intensity, you'd have more carbohydrates and, and so on and so forth. We kind of bring that down almost like a micro cycle level of how you would do your nutrition, you know, within the week to tailor to the rides. And this is the more macro cycle level, right? Of like how, how might I eat during base and how might that look different compared to uh, doing some more in high intensity threshold or VO two max type training. Yep. And, um, I actually had someone, um, talk to me about, they basically claimed that pro riders try to eat the same thing every day, the same number of calories, the same, like very similar meals. And that just seems at odds with my understanding of, you know, basically what we talked about today, it seems like they should have a lot of variability and they, they do need to learn exactly what fuels them correctly and what fueling is appropriate for what exercises and what workouts. And, um, this is interesting because if you remember team sky, uh, banning soda and the question was, well, you know, it's just sugar. Like, why can't they just have a Coke after the ride or during the race or something like that? And I think that it's part of a greater scheme by the dietitians to say, this is all really important, like day to day, minute to minute, getting the ingestion correct. And, you know, I would say these white papers seem to indicate that, yeah, timing is all important. Day to day choices are really important. And maybe this is a bit of uh, like data overload. Some of us are, you know, I fall into this sometimes, like I just need some calories and mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are studies that say that if you, you know, after a race, you eat 2000 calories of Wendy's or you eat 2000 calories of the best, uh, you know, it's recovery food you ever could, you you recover basically the same. Mm-hmm. And of course, in the long term, that's not a good right. idea. Yes. You shouldn't be eating Wendy's after every ride. But uh, in a pinch, we have we have almost these competing theories and these competing ideas of, yeah, yeah, it's all really important. And, eh, you know, you should get calories in. So it's really interesting and obviously, hope. I mean, hopefully we learn more each year as they study this more, but this seems to be the new trend in sports uh, dietetics is, you know, when should we eat? And, you know, they've already done studies where, you know, 30 minutes after a ride, protein is great. An hour after the ride, you've already missed your chance to get, you know, protein into the muscles and um we're going to get even more minute with the studies and we're hopefully going to really understand how our body responds to food. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so, so important, right? It's no, no doubt when, if you're uh, in motorsports, what type of fuel you need to put in the engine. And here we have our engine that we're fueling and we have so many options and we don't really know all that much about it. Um, I, I remember reading a long time ago when I started racing uh, that the, the good sports scientists uh, and the U.S. U.S. cycling at the time said, "Well, we need to get them calories, and we need to get them more calories. So let's put let's have them drink olive oil from their water bottles, like olive oil and water mixture, because you know fat is more dense than carbohydrates. So that would be a great way to you know. Of course, this did not go over very well, but that just shows you how much we've evolved in our thinking about sports science. Like their theory wasn't incorrect. We need to get the riders' energy so they can perform." 
just how they went about it we have since learned it was maybe maybe not ideal yeah it's interesting that you mentioned that because the i believe it's in the review they mentioned that um they you can do intravenous uh, fat um i, I forget the term you know inject yeah, fat yeah, yeah. into the bloodstream directly and and the the author goes on to say this is an unrealistic approach like uh, <laughs> you don't say <laughs> but also you know the uci bands needles and stuff could you imagine uh you know a, a rider with a Needle in his arm and a, a baggie full a little, of olive oil. A little camelback full of olive oil <laughs> yeah. or coconut oil. Yeah, and then squeezing it every once in a while to make sure it gets <laughs> in. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's not. I mean, that's not going to happen. But there, there have been some indications that adding coconut oil to your sports bars that was also mentioned in one of the studies. Um, you know, we know that medium chain triglycerides can provide energy, but do they provide energy greater than just carbs? Uh, mm-hmm. Are these competing uptakes going to prevent each other from you know, maximally absorbing calories or are they completely separate pathways and can they be absorbed at the same time? And we already know that if you have different types of sugar, you can get a higher total yep. uptake of carbohydrates. How about these um, medium cha- chain triglycerides in, it in, in addition? So, And time too, right? Because the carbohydrate absorption is pretty quick fat absorption tends to be a little bit slower. So at what point is it no longer useful to intake that fat, right? Is it, you know, an hour into a four hour ride and it's no longer useful or even at three hour three, is it still useful? And you can, you still use that energy of fat that you ingested, or maybe that just becomes useful in your recovery, right? That's a whole nother component, right? As you're eating during your ride, how are you setting yourself up for recovering after that ride? Yeah, I mean, so many questions to ask, and of course, a one-day race—it doesn't matter. Like, just smash it, get to the finish line, and like, we'll figure it out later. We'll scrape up the pieces yeah, you know, when we get home. But you know, Tour de France riders, yeah, you got to be ready constantly for the next thinking day. about that. Yep. So uh, yeah, that's the protocol I used. I really enjoyed it. I didn't have the usual issues that I've tried other methods of um, getting lean for the season, and you know, with some success, some bounce back, some you know, not success. And, uh, this seemed to be a really good protocol for me. So I'd recommend you try it out and, uh, you got to stick with it for a little bit, but, um, yeah, you should see results. And, uh, I guess I just want to share it and I'm glad that the science backs me up. (laughs) At least the science that you found supports you. Yeah. So yeah, I've, I've brushed under the table all the, uh, no, I haven't. I brushed under the table all the, uh, you know, the white papers that all the studies that refute. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, if you guys liked, um, this episode, we, we want to get out to more people. Of course, we're just trying to share our experiences and, um, talk a little bit more about cycling. So, you know, you know, feel free to like and subscribe and comment and post and retweet and, um, I can't think of any other doohickey terms. But I think those are all the normal yeah. uh, normal terms of social currency. And uh, yeah, Todd, if you have anything else, if not, you... Uh, uh, nothing nothing to add. I mean, well, nothing to add today, but I'm sure there's plenty more talks on nutrition to come. Uh, but until then, as I always say, keep the rubber side down.